Okay, so let me tell you what's going on. All right. So tonight, uh, tonight, I want to tell you a story. Um, and so I thought it'd be appropriate, you know, when you're young and you go camping, right? And then you do your things, you play, you swim, and so forth. And then in the evening, you all gather around the fire, and it's story time, right? So tonight, I want to tell you a love story. So I want to change things up a little bit, so I hope you forgive me. So we have the fire. I'm sorry I have no marshmallows to give you guys. We can, we can do that next time. So, um... <laughs> So you should have you should have a, a sheet with verses in your hand. Now I am going to blow through this, okay? So I'm not going to like this verse, this verse. Pretty much what I'm hoping to tell you tonight is on here. And I gave you verses for it. So I'm just going to be referring to this as we go. There's a lot of ground to cover. So obviously, many of you know this week, the lesson for this week with Christian students is the type of Eve as the counterpart of Adam. Okay? So, what I want to do is I want to tell you a love story. So, all love stories begin this way. Once upon an eternity past. (laughs) In a place far, far away. Was... God. And this God, he had everything. He had all knowledge, all power, all wisdom, all honor, all might, all holiness. Everything you can think of, he has. In fact, if Oprah were to interview him, she'd say, do you have peace? He would say, yes, I do. Do you have love? Yes. And according to 1 Timothy 6.16, this wonderful, incredible, awesome, holy, mighty God was alone. And so maybe as she goes down the questions... Then she may ask him, do you have a match? Do you have a counterpart? Do you have someone like you, similar to you? And he would have to say, no, I don't. Imagine this. God has everything. He is everything. And that's what makes him unique. And because of this uniqueness, he's in a class by himself. And he's alone. So in eternity past, there is just God alone. So do you know what we call someone who has everything? Strength, power, knowledge, riches, but doesn't have a wife? Not just a bachelor, (laughs) but the most eligible bachelor. Ah. 
You know, a lot of you guys here, you guys are bachelor, but you're not the most eligible bachelor. You have no money. You have no college degree. So, yeah, sure, I'm a bachelor, but who's going to marry you, right? But, you know, there are a few people like this, aren't there, in the world, right? They have fame and fortune and so forth, and for some odd reason, they're not married. It's almost like they try, just can't get married. And eventually, whether they like it or not, whether good or not, they get this label, an eligible bachelor, And maybe they would even have a list of the top whatever eligible bachelors in the world. And they may rank them. Well, at the top of that list is God himself. He is the most eligible bachelor in the universe. In eternity. And we also know from the Bible that in eternity, where God is dwelling in unapproachable light... Even then, he was desirous to marry man. He was desirous to have a counterpart. He was desirous to have a bride, a wife. It's on here, I'll just tell you, it's Ephesians 1, 20, 1 4 and 5.27. You can take this home and look at it and study with each other. But basically, one of the verses says that God chose us before the foundation of the world to be holy and without blemish. And that particular expression, holy and without blemish, is only used one other time later on in that book, chapter 5. And is referred to Christ presenting the church as a bride to himself and that this bride would be holy and without blemish. God chose us for this. And this choosing, according to Ephesians 1.4, occurred before the foundation of the world. And that phrase means before the creation itself. So even before time existed, before there was a single molecule or an atom to make up anything in the universe, before there was even space or whatever many dimensions out there there are, there was just God. But it wasn't just God. Yet he was, yes, he was alone. And as this one who is alone, in his heart, from eternity, he was thinking about man. But not just man, according to Ephesians 1.4, specifically his chosen people. I don't know how to explain this. I can just tell you that in Ephesians chapter 1, somehow, in eternity, before each one of us existed, God saw us. He knew us from everybody else. And he says, I select this one. I choose this one to my son to constitute my bride. I choose this one, and I choose this one, and so forth, and so forth, and so forth. And he chose all his people during that, during that period. It's not really a period because time didn't exist at that point. So this desire for God to be married has always existed with God. It wasn't just, here was the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the Triune God, the Trinity. 
And there they are, since forever, forever, forever. And we don't really know what that means. And they're just there. And then one day, you know, the proverbial light bulb goes off. And the father says, son, I have an idea. It's a pretty good one. Let's get you married. Let's have a bride. According to the word, God's choosing of us to be the bride occurred in eternity past. It is his eternal purpose. That's Ephesians 3.11. Therefore, it has always been with him. And then, eventually, God decided, okay, we need to make this happen. Right now, you guys are in school, but one day, the urge will come. You may see somebody. The Lord will speak to you. That's the one. Well, then you have to decide. Now, it's time to make something happen. And so God finally took a step out of eternity. And the first step he took out of eternity was to create the universe. And in light of this, the universe is actually the background, the backdrop. It is the place where God will get married. Therefore, it should not be strange to us that this is how the Bible begins. If you flip it open and you get to the very first verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Don't stare too much at the fire, you'll fall asleep. (laughs) Stay with me. So God created the universe. First, he made the heavens. He made the heavens so that he could put the earth in it. And then he made the earth so that he could put man in it. And he made man, Genesis 1.26. We've been looking at this verse up and down, right and left, in and out. And God said, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. But what's wonderful is, a little later on in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, it is told us why God makes man. And in chapter 54, verse 5, it says, For your maker is your husband. It cannot get any clearer than that. If you can read English, you will understand this verse. Isaiah 54, 5 explains to us what God was thinking in Genesis 1, 26. So now, we have a dilemma. Which one is more impressive? That man is in the image and likeness of God? Or that he is to be God's bride, his wife? The Bible is not ashamed, not bashful in this regard. It tells you, God made man to be his wife. So what was God thinking in his creation of man? He was thinking romantically. What was his thought? It was affectionate. What was his desire for man? It was loving and so forth. So God didn't simply make man and say, I am the creator, you're the creature. I'm the master, you're the subject. 
I'm great and mighty. I'm the eternal God. You're just a small speck. According to Isaiah, God looked at man. He says, I am your husband. Man, I am your husband. Maybe man, in looking at God, says, Are you my maker? Are you my creator? Well, surely that's true. But most likely, God would say, I am your husband. Creation was a romantic thought from God. And it came out of God's heart, romantically, to fulfill his desire to have a counterpart. And then in the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, all 39 books of it, was a time for God to court the children of Israel. First, he has to bring forth the children of Israel. That took some time, through some generations and different people. Then they passed through certain events and situations and so forth to mold them and shape them in a certain way. And then not long after the book of Genesis, the very next book, Exodus, which people have made movies and stories have been told about this book, God comes in to the children of Israel. And we always say that. He came to rescue, to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt to bring them to the good land. And on their journey to the good land, they were in the wilderness for 40 years. We always say that. But in Jeremiah, when God is speaking through Jeremiah, he does not refer to them as the children of Israel. He says that he remembers the kindness of their youth in their bridal days when he was a husband to them. So we say God brought out the children of Israel from Egypt. God said, I brought my bride out of Egypt. And when God gave his bride the law in Jeremiah, it says that law was a covenant of marriage so that God could be a husband to them. Prior, listen, imagine this. When God is talking to Moses, and they're having an exchange, God's telling Moses, listen, I need to go into Egypt, and I need to get my bride out of there. This has been my desire from eternity. And I know a lot of things have transpired and occurred, but I'm still, I'm still intent on this. So Moses, I need to go in, go in there and bring out my bride. And Moses, after some discussions, agreed to do this. And right before he went, you know what he did? He said, oh, by the way, I don't know your name. What should I tell your bride? Who is it that's sending me to them? They're going to want to know who. What if I walk up to you and said, by the way, someone wants to marry you. Wouldn't you want to know who? Isn't that the first thing you ask? Uh, who? Then maybe what? 
<laughs> right? Okay. Can you imagine? Moses did not know God's name. God's own people, his bride, did not know his name. So God says, tell him that I am, that I am is sending you. Jehovah is sending you. How is it that God's own people does not know his name? The very people he desires to marry. And so there it is. Moses goes. He brings the children of Israel out. And so if Moses doesn't know God's name, what do you think about the children of Israel? Nevertheless, they followed Moses and the Lord and came out of Egypt into the wilderness. And then in the wilderness, God comes to them. And we understand it as God giving them the law. But if you read Exodus 20, it does not say law. He gave them words. In fact, the word commandment is not used at all. The word for commandment in Hebrew literally means the word. God gave them the word. And the word was about what? It wasn't about what's on the menu or how many guests we're inviting or where it's going to be. The word mainly was concerning God. First, he tells them who he is. I am the only God. You have no other God before me. I'm a loving God. I'm a righteous God. I'm a holy God. I'm a jealous God. Why would he do this? Because how will the children of Israel be attracted and captivated to him unless they know him? You know, when it comes your time, and some of you in this room are at that time, when it comes your time to spend, to, then when you find the other person, your spouse, you go, this is the one I went married. I doubt you will get married the next day. Probably. Or maybe a week later. Probably. Probably you would take a few months, maybe six months, eight months. And what will you do during that time? You may go out to dinner. You may go for a walk in the park. You may go to Zilka Park. Who knows where you go. But why do you do all these things? You do it mainly to get to know one another. Because in that time, there's some conversing going on. And as you find out about this other person, you realize, wow, I really like this person. I can't wait to marry this person. Outwardly, I like this person. But now inwardly, the thoughts, the feelings, I agree, I like this. I can see myself with this person. There has to be some time to get to know each other. Otherwise, without this, at least in America, you're not going to get married. So why did God spend 40 years in the wilderness with the children of Israel? Why not just bring them right into the good land? Because he wanted to have a time with them where he would unveil himself to them. Look at me. I am a holy God, righteous, loving, merciful, jealous, affectionate toward you. I would take care of all your needs. I would cherish you. I would nourish you. I forgive you. I will give you life. And the children of Israel would look and go, wow, 
I am so attracted to you right now. I love you, God. God, I love you. And God would say, actually, I love you first. And the Trinity would say, we see that. We feel that. We understand that. We experience that. And in return, we love you back. This is the Old Testament. And God is working with the children of Israel to gain them as their bride and to do one more thing. What is that? To produce Christ from them. Christ comes forth from many generations through Israel. And so, think about this. The children of Israel are on the earth and God... Outside of the temple, really his dwelling place was in the third heavens. It was almost a little bit of a long distant relationship, right? But with the incarnation of Christ in the New Testament, God was planted two feet on terra firma. So he's actually closer to the man he loves than he was in the Old Testament. For 33 and a half years, there was God on the earth. Matthew through John record this for us. You see how he interacts with man. And when you read the gospel, what do you see? How much he cares for man. He'll heal man. He'll restore his sight, his lameness. He'll forgive man. He'll cast out demons. He'll feed man. And even it uses phrase like, he was moved with compassion. Now does it make sense why the gospel speaks this way? Because God is in love with man. And then, at the end of his earthly ministry... He goes to the cross. And what do we think of when we think of the cross? Sin is taken care of. Satan is destroyed. <clears throat> Forgiveness is accomplished. Right? That's normally our thought. Redemption. How great redemption is. But in John fifteen thirteen, tells you what the Lord thought of redemption. He says, there is no greater love than this, that one lays down his life for his friend. So, he spoke this right before going to the cross. He was about to go and lay down his life on our behalf, to die a substitutionary death for us, to bear our iniquities and our infirmities on the cross. And he said, don't think of this merely as a sacrifice or a substitution or a great work of redemption. Surely that is true. He said there is no greater love than this. So he's saying, think of this and receive this as the greatest act of love I'm about to do for you. That's John fifteen thirteen. So he went to the cross out of love to display his love as an action of love toward man. Because he knows, if I can redeem man, and I can regenerate man, then I can produce my bride. And so he went to the cross, 
And just as Eve came out of the side of Adam from a bone, and God built Eve into a woman, that bone into a woman, and brought the bone to uh, brought the woman to Adam. And at the end of Genesis two, they are referred to as husband and wife. Christ also went to the cross in love. And a soldier pierced his side. And out came blood and water. And that blood and water produced the church. And so the Lord says, and are we then surprised? In Matthew 16, I will build my church. And so the entire New Testament age, when we look at the Gospels, what was the Lord doing for the three and a half years he was with disciples? Or for the 33 so years he was on the earth? He was working to produce a bride. And then he ascended. And he transferred the work to his disciples. Those who love him. And even at the very end of the gospel, the last chapter, he appears to Peter. He says, Peter, do you love me? You know, my wife, she does this a lot. Every now and then, she's like, Tino, do you love me? Of course I do. But she asks, almost teasing, you know. Bothering a little bit. She wants to hear it. She wants to know it. At night, when we go to bed, I always hear, if I don't say I love you, I I know she's going to give me the little... (coughs) (laughs) (laughs) And so I have to say, I love you. And here's the Lord. It's like he's bothering Peter. Like He just enjoys it. Peter... Do you love me? You know I do. I love you, Lord. Peter, do you love me? (laughs) Yes, Lord. Peter, do you love me? Three times. That's how the gospel ends. With God asking Peter, do you love me? Even after your failure, even after denying me three times, fleeing from me during that time. And in my resurrection, I told Mary, go tell the brothers and Peter. Make sure you tell Peter because he's forgiven. He's redeemed. He's regenerated. It's not a problem. I love him too much. I will not hold this against him. Go tell Peter. Make sure he's there. Surely Peter realized. Can you imagine Peter? You know, say he went out and wept bitterly. In fact, when he denied the Lord the third time, you know, they made eye contact. Can you imagine? You disappoint someone, and right at the moment of the disappointment, you make the eye contact. I don't know what the Lord did. Did he look down, up? I'm sure Peter went, oh. Can you imagine? He was probably broken. And yet, he discovered, by the way, Peter, the Lord resurrected. What? No, seriously. <laughs> I saw him. And he, he specifically mentioned your name. 
people must realize, wow, how much he loves me. And yet still at the end of the gospel, the Lord comes and says three times. Maybe each time for each of his denial, I don't know. Three times, Peter, do you love me? That's how the gospel ends. That's how the Lord leaves, in a sense, leaves earth. So perhaps the Lord would ask us. Maybe you may be in your day, and in your spirit, you may get a... We'll come back to that. Okay. Then, after the Lord left, the disciples came in, the apostles came in, and they began the New Testament ministry, the fellowship and the teaching of the apostles, starting from Acts all the way until before until the book of Revelation. So there they are, the apostles, they're in the New Testament ministry. And the leading apostle, the leading apostle among them, there's a man named Paul. Paul the Apostle. And if you read Paul's writing, he talks about many things. But when we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he, so to speak, sums up his entire ministry in one verse. In 2 Corinthians, did I put that here? I might not put it here. 2 Corinthians 11, 2. If you want to write that down. Paul says, I betroth you as a pure virtue. For I am jealous over you with the jealousy of God. That's the same thing God said when he appeared to the children of Israel in the wilderness and gave him the law so they would know who he was. He says, I'm a jealous God. And here's Paul. He says, I am jealous over you with the jealousy of God to present you not just to teach you, to show you the New Testament, to show you Revelation, to present you as a pure virgin to your husband, Christ. So everything Paul was doing in his ministry that eventually became the New Testament ministry is a betrothal ministry, an espousal ministry, an engagement ministry, a giving in marriage ministry. Paul was struggling, laboring, fighting for one thing, to build the church, to have the body as the bride. Because this is what Christ, the husband, desires. So from that time on until now and until the Lord comes back, you know what's going on? We're, we are all being betrothed. We're being, we have been engaged. And the Lord, through all of the experiences we have, He is appearing to us, showing more of Himself to us, having fellowship, having interaction with us, so that we would know Him, and we would gain Him, so that He could produce us as His bride. And eventually, this age will come to an end, and you know how it will end? It will end with a wedding. And in Revelation, it tells us that to begin the next age, the millennial kingdom, there will be a marriage of the Lamb, who is Christ, and the wife, his bride, who's made herself ready. 
And this marriage, this wedding day, is going to be so incredible that it's going to last for a thousand years. Have you ever been to a wedding that lasted for a thousand years? You know, sometimes we go to a wedding, we're like, when is this going to be over? (laughs) We won't be asking that here. At that time, we're like, wow, that was just day one of a thousand years. There's still 99 more years to go in 364 days. So the Bible concludes with the wedding in the same way it opens in Genesis 2 with the wedding of Adam and Eve. It will end with the wedding of the overcomers as the bride of Christ to marry Christ. And that will be a special reward, a special dispensation given to those who live a romantic overcoming life with the Lord in this age. And then, after that, the new Jerusalem comes in. And maybe the first heaven and the first earth was the bachelor pad. But you know, after you get married, you got to move out of the bachelor pad. So what does God do? He creates a new heaven and a new earth. And there, as in New Jerusalem, God dwells with man for eternity. And so, listen... We know Isaiah 54, 5 says, For your maker, you catch that word? Your maker is your husband. Okay, what can we do with that? Well, if we go back to Genesis 1, 26, it says, And God said, Let us make man. Okay, we know who that God is that made man, so let's make a few switch. And the husband said, Let us make man. How about another switch? And the husband said, let us make a wife. See, that was going on. There at the beginning, chapter 1, the husband is making man to be his wife. Okay, then you go to the end of the Bible. Okay, now you can turn to this. Look at uh, Revelation 21, 1 and 2. Uh, 21, 2, just 21, 2. Let's read this all together. Ready to go. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. There it is. There's the husband again. The husband who was in Genesis 6 was creating, was making man to be his wife. Finally, in Revelation. The Bible tells us this will be accomplished. This will occur. The husband will gain his bride. And so, I'll just end with this. There are many things we could show you, you know, what to do from here. So many wonderful practices and uh, uh, verses that shows us, you know, what we should, uh, what we should practice in a, in a, in a healthy way, in a spiritually healthy way every day for this to, 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 for this to occur. And even it says that if we would do these things, we would hasten this day to come. Do you realize that? We can actually hasten the Lord's return. But I would just tell you this. 
just this one thing. And this, I think, we should take, I hope you take this in your heart. And it's, it's very easy to do. But it is simply to tell the Lord that we love Him. That's it. Lord Jesus, I love you. And sometimes you can be loud. Lord Jesus, I love you. And sometimes you can just be soft. Lord Jesus, I love you. You can do this when you wake up, when you're driving, when you're walking to class, when you're listening to that professor, when you're taking your tests, when you find out the grade of your tests. <laughs> Maybe especially then. When you go to bed, Lord Jesus, I love you. Thank you for loving me. I love you. Lord Jesus, I love you. Because I believe, and I hope from this day on, you will get that <clears throat> in your spirit throughout the day. The Lord just comes two, three times. Austin, do you love me? <laughs> And we have to say, Lord Jesus, by your mercy and your grace, I love you. Amen. So we should practice this. It's very simple. And one time I heard a person whom I respect very much. He says, if we would do this a hundred times a day, it will change and how's it going? It would change us. It will revolutionize us. So I hope before you graduate, maybe one of these days, you actually have done it a hundred times for that day. Lord Jesus, I love you. Because ultimately, the Bible is a divine romance. It shows us that God desires to be joined to man in the most loving, the most holy, the most pure way. And ultimately, God's joining to man is defined as one of a husband and a wife in a marriage. And this is how much God loves us, and this is his desire for us to love him. Okay? All right. So that is the story for tonight.